Paul Martin is a native and long-term resident of Toronto. He holds a BA in Biblical Studies from the Master's College and the MDiv from the Master's Seminary. That's both of uh, Los Angeles, California. And since 1994, he has pastored churches in Chesley and Toronto, Ontario. And he is the founding pastor of Grace Fellowship Church. Paul and his wife, Suzanne, live with their four children in Toronto and have dedicated their lives to the furtherance of the gospel in their beloved city. And Paul is also the chair of the Gospel Coalition here in Ontario. So please welcome Paul Martin. Friends, thanks for coming to a workshop uh, after you ate lunch. What a great challenge for me. And uh, I pray the Lord's going to really bless our time together. I'm going to begin by reading the little blurb that um, came with the description of this workshop. It says this, a close look at the history of true revival proves there are almost, almost, I'm going to come back to that word, almost always three elements that precede it, three elements that precede revival. The saints uniting together in earnest prayer, the pulpits becoming even more word-centered, and the churches of many denominations reaching outside of their tribe, quote-unquote, to know and work with those of like faith. And then it's followed by these questions. Has this begun in Canada? Can we expect God to work in unique and powerful ways in the years to come? It's always nice to do a workshop where the first two sessions of your conference have spoken to some of those things, um, but I think in the discussion we'll be able to work some of that out. Here's how I'd like to proceed. Uh, first, I want to try and prove my premise to you, and uh, I was just thinking to myself before I came up here, uh, let the dead speak. <laughs> let, let the dead speak. Uh, what I really want to do is... Um, look back in history to the people who actually lived through revival, that experienced revival firsthand, undisputed revival, spiritual revival. And I've, I've probably read, um, I don't want to overestimate, maybe 15 to 20 books on revival, and, and I have a great interest in Whitfield and his era, so I read a lot of books in that area. Um, and what, I'm gonna, what I've kind of done here is accumulated all these different firsthand quotes and descriptions and uh, organized them for us under some various headings. And mostly what you're going to hear today is not me. This is positive for a couple reasons. One, your argument's not with me. Um, secondly, you should never pick on dead guys. So uh, you're going you're to hear what they have to say. But I also think it's very helpful, as I said, to listen to people who have actually experienced these things. Um, in the first hand, have observed them, have lived through them. Some of these men we'll read from were converted during these revivals. Uh, and hear what they have to say about these things that we can learn from them. And of course, we'll look to the Word of God as well. So let me pray for us uh, and ask the Lord would bless our time together. Father, thank you for what you've done so far. I've been so encouraged listening to Don and then John, and I'm eager for this afternoon and this evening and tomorrow. Um, I feel like already, Lord, you are answering prayer. You're bathing us in the word, washing us in the word of God. And we are refreshed and helped and encouraged. And I pray that this workshop would be likewise helpful in some small way, would encourage us, help us, strengthen us, renew us, maybe give us a better focus on what true revival is, what we need to be praying for. 
So, Lord, uh, you come now. You do your work in our midst. We depend upon you um, gladly. This we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. So my premise is that prayer, preaching, and cooperation, and I'll try to uh, define all of these things, are almost always necessary pre-events to true revival. Now that phrase, almost always, is very deliberate. Um, I, I don't want to make this sound like uh, you know, there's, there's this formula that we can follow. So I just want to be very clear in my language. I think if you look historically when true revival has taken place, these three things are, are major factors in the lead-up, all right, in the lead-up to true revival. So uh, to be very clear, I'm not a revival uh, participant as much as a revival anticipator. I am eager to see God revive my country. I was born and raised here. I love Canada. I want God to work all over the globe, but I most certainly want him to work here in Canada. I have maybe, maybe lived through one very small localized revival. Uh, I don't know for sure, maybe, but that's the expanse of my experience with revival. So how I want to proceed is kind of threefold. Number one, I want to talk about what revival is, and then secondly, um, how these three things, prayer, preaching, cooperation, go with it. And then I want to leave you with what we need to do. All right? that's, that's what I want. I want, I want to empower you to, to do things. So let's start with definitions. And I'll draw this first definition from a book called Land of Many Revivals, Scotland's Extraordinary Legacy of Christian Revivals Over Four Centuries uh, by Lenny, who's actually quoting Tudor Jones, who says this. A religious revival, and by the way, I should tell you this now, uh, if there's quotes, I'm, I'm going to put all my quotes on the screen behind me. A, if you can't read them, don't worry, you can hear me. Secondly, if you want them, um, we'll put an email uh, address up at the end of this workshop, and you can just email, and I'll send you all of them. I, I don't, there's so many, I didn't feel free to put it on my blog, so it, it just felt like I was in copyright infringing, but I'll e email you a copy if you want them. So, with that, here we go. A religious revival involves a spiritual awakening or revitalization within churches or within an area which contrasts with the smooth flow of daily life. I thought that was very helpful. From the Christian perspective, it should be understood as the specific activity of the Holy Spirit doing these things. Deepening people's commitment to God, intensifying their concern about their eternal destiny. Individuals are converted, so brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of our beloved Savior, often in large numbers, also, churches are revitalized and the excitement spreads to surrounding localities. These newly converted or revived Christians become infused with missionary spirit and dedicate themselves to a holy life and not infrequently to cultural and social service. I think that's an excellent starting place. I'm not going to take a whole lot of time to unpack it, but the big things you need to pull out of that definition are these. Life is going along. Christians are being faithful. God works in a unique way, all right? And when he works in that unique way, Christians are, have a deeper sense of the reality of God and God at work in the world, and unbelievers are getting converted in large numbers of some kind, no specified number. I think that's a good starting place, but there's some things that it leaves out. One of the things it leaves out is this. True revival always brings lasting fruit, True revival always brings lasting 
fruit. Spurgeon said this, We have had plenty of revivals of the human sort, and their results have been sadly disappointing. Under excitement, nominal converts have been multiplied, but where are they after a little testing? I am sadly compelled to own, so far as I can observe, there has been much sown and very little reaped that was worth reaping. Our hopes were a flattering dream, but the apparent result has vanished like a vision of the night. But where the Spirit of God is really at work, the convert stands. So again, just a huge point you need to understand when we're talking about revival. What I'm talking about when I'm talking about revival is that people are being genuinely converted. That's not seen by somebody walking down an aisle or raising a hand or filling out a card or even telling you that they're a Christian now. It's seen over the long haul. There is demonstrable fruitfulness to their life. Lasting fruit means that that professed faith in Jesus Christ continues on, right? And they become members of local churches. They serve in the church. In fact, the the real lovers of revival especially in the Second Great Awakening, waited a long time before they would declare this is really revival. Why? They were waiting because they weren't impressed with large crowds. They weren't impressed with uh, you know, excitement, people crying out, people coming forward, people exclaiming things. They waited to see what would be left behind when the dust settled. And if the things left behind were greater unity, a greater sense of God's presence with us, uh, genuine conversions, then they would say, hey, this was true revival. So true revival leaves behind lasting fruit. True revival is, secondly, um, more of a something added to a regular ministry than it is anything else. Somehow, Daniel uh, Rowland, uh, somehow men felt an irresistible constraint, an inner and inexplicable attraction to hear the preachers of the Great Awakening. There was a plainness and directness about their dealing with souls, a simplicity and homeliness about their style, which was compelling and attractive. They would go away, many of them, with a lasting impression on their hearts and a new direction in their lives. Now, my point here is, is saying these men were doing this work and then God intervened. They were doing the work of the ministry. We're not the first generation to get things twisted around here, but we are far and away the most technologically advanced, or at least the most technologically enabled. So we, we start to think things like this. Preaching needs PowerPoint. Singing needs amplification. Auditoriums need stage lighting. Videos need to be posted. Likes means spiritual activity. A building means success. Numbers means success. We start to define things in terms that the Bible never does. All of those things can be useful, but they are not necessary. And when we really mess things up is when we start to put our trust in those things rather than in the Lord. The old maxim is true. What you win them with is what you win them to. What you win them with is what you win them to. So what happens is we move from being enamored with these things to thinking that we need them, and then we get sucked into this kind of evangelical consumerism that demands that we always have to have the next best thing because our trust is in the thing. Our trust is not in the Lord. Uh, Ian Murray, in his excellent book, Revival and Revivalism, says this, In an outpouring of the Spirit, 
Spiritual influence is more widespread, convictions are deeper, and feelings more intense. But listen to this. All this is only a heightening of normal Christianity. Does that make sense? It's just a heightening of normal Christianity. True revivals are extraordinary, yet what is experienced at such times is not different in essence from the spiritual experience that belongs to Christians at other times. That leads me to my third point, which is like the second, but a little bit different. That means then that true revival is unpredictable. Unpredictable in its arrival. There's a church around the corner from me, has a revival on the third Friday night of every month. They have a revival. There's a sign that says, Revival, Friday night, 7 o'clock. I don't think that's revival. They can say it's revival. I don't think it is a biblical concept of revival. Now, this may sound a little disingenuous on my part, because here I am saying these three things need to come before revival. Um, But let me explain what I mean. Robert Murray McShane once wrote this in a letter. um, I sometimes think that a great blessing may come to my people in my absence. Often God does not bless us when we are in the middle, in the midst of our labors, lest we shall say, my hand and my eloquence have done it. He removes us into silence and then pours down a blessing so that there's no room to receive it, so that all see see it, cry out, it is the Lord. And if you know the life of McShane, you know that's exactly what happened to him. He he thought he was dying in Palestine somewhere in the desert. Um, And so he's just laboring with God on behalf of his little church back in Scotland. And doesn't God bring another man there who preaches once and revival breaks out? He wrote the letter long before that happened. Uh, What previous generations understood was that revival was unpredictable specifically because it's the work of the Spirit. And you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 3. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. He says to Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes. And you'll know there that the wind is is a, a metaphor of the Spirit of God. You hear its sound, you don't know where it comes from, where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. And that's why Ian Murray writes this. In the case of the Second Great Awakening, nearly all the preachers prominent at the outset had already been laboring for many years. It gives guys like me a lot of hope. (laughs) They're just down, they're doing the work, and they're praying that God would come, and he did. This is where one has to think rightly, or you start to veer off in all kinds of wrong directions. Uh, Writing about Lloyd-Jones, Murray says this, Dr. Lloyd-Jones did not regard the view that a revival can be produced or worked up by human effort as a minor mistake. He traced that error to a false view of the meaning of conversion itself. So Lloyd-Jones would write, pray for revival? Yes, go on. But do not try to create it. Do not attempt to produce it. It is only given by Christ himself. The last church to be visited by a revival is the church that's trying to make a revival. Again, consider the amazing ministry of Whitfield. No one can say, anybody here not know who George Whitfield is? It really, you can be honest. I'll do it the other way. Put up your hand if you know who George Whitfield is, basically. Okay. So maybe a couple of you that aren't, aren't as familiar with Whitfield, um, talk to me later. My son's middle name is Whitfield, so... Uh, I'd love to tell you about Whitfield. But Murray writes this, No one can say why Whitfield saw only one great awakening, though he was preaching for nearly 20 years after it had concluded. 
No one can explain why the same prayerful efforts, even undertaken by the same people in the same place, were attended by such different results at different times. The only explanation? The sovereign spirit. He works, the wind blows where it will, right? I think that's why, if you don't have, I don't I meant to check beforehand if the book was there, Revival and Revivalism by Ian Murray. It is a book every pastor needs to read, in my opinion. I like all my interns to read it. It's, it's an excellent, excellent historical tracing of what revival is and what revivalism is, and the two are very, very different. Here's how revivalism changed things. The older generation had always spoken of their work as that of seeking the glory of God in the salvation of sinners. Now the objective was simply soul winning. Numbers, bodies in the pew, we need more people. Those two things are entirely different. Seeking the the glory of God and the salvation of the lost or getting bodies. Even prayer, think about this, even prayer ceased to be thought of primarily as worship and became rather the best means for the fulfillment of human need. So, true revival, sovereign working of God, leaves behind lasting fruit, something's added to the regular faithfulness of God's servants. It's unpredictable when it comes. And let me say this as well. True revival does not define success. If you, if you follow through where I'm going with this, you realize that as much as we might long for revival, a lack of it occurring is not a sign of ministry failure. It may be, but it's not necessarily so. Again, I quote Murray from Revival and Revivalism. The duties of labor, prayer, and evangelism are constants. The old school men kept the possibility of great effusions, workings of the Spirit before them, but they never supposed that without revival, all labor was futile. They believed that God would grant his blessing in the measure that was appropriate, whether in its heightened form, gloriously advancing his kingdom, or in quieter ways. They also sought to remember that the prayer... Uh, that the prayer and work of one generation, think about this, the prayer and work of one generation are generally far more closely intertwined in God's purpose in another generation than we can readily recognize. It took me about 15 years into my ministry and thinking about God's blessing in my life and the ways he had provided for me when I realized, oh yeah, I wonder if that has anything to do with a father-in-law who prays for me every day. I got a lot to do with that, the unseen work of the Spirit. So my point here is simply to say, if we don't see revival in our day, I don't think you need to be depressed like you're a ministry failure. You need, you need to evaluate and you need to come to one of two conclusions. One, I'm faithless and I've abandoned God's ordained means to advance the gospel in the world, so I am a failure. Because you are. <laughs> if, you're, if you're a pastor of a church and you give up preaching and you give up prayer and you give up standing on the word of God, you are a failure in the eyes of God. I hate to break it to you. But if you're a faithful man of God who's preaching God's word and you're praying for God to work and you don't see the kind of revival that you read about or you see it happening maybe locally over there but it's not happening closely here, that's not a sign of failure. God is the one who determines when revival comes and where it comes. And that means, finally, that true revival cannot be forced. I realize this is a long definition, but I, I don't know any of you. Well, I know some of you. And I just think it's really important we're all talking about the same thing. True revival can't be forced. You can't make it happen. Revivalism 
is the idea that true revival can be guaranteed if you follow a, a formula, a set recipe, something like baking a cake, as if God had sent down a little three-by-five card with instructions and finished it off with, just add two parts prayer, bake overnight, and boom, baby, you'll get yourself a revival. But that's not how it works. That's not, never how it works. Again, uh, Lloyd-Jones quote there. Now, I'm taking all this time to spell this out because I want to stress that God is sovereign. Our God is in the heavens, Psalm 113, and he does whatever he pleases. Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. He works all things after the counsel of his will. Even the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. God is sovereign, we are not. And we're talking about the sovereign working of God to bring reviving to a country or to churches That is God's prerogative. That is God's rule. That is God's place. Only God knows when revival is best. It's supremely his to give or to withhold. And ours is to ask. And we're free to ask. Isn't that glorious? You can ask. But many, many generations of godly men and women have spent a lifetime praying for revival and never saw it. It doesn't mean they were failing. It's not a failure in their method. It's not a failure in God. It's sovereignty. And sovereignty is good and sovereignty is beautiful. And so that leads me to my second point. How you doing? You want to stand up for a minute? Whenever I'm at conferences, I love it when people tell me this. You want to stand up and like get the blood flowing for a second? Or are you okay? I'm, I always feel terrible after I eat. Great. All right, sit down again. That's enough of that break. Point number two, let me try and prove these things, that preaching, prayer, and cooperation need to pre-exist or almost always pre-exist true revival. Almost, uh, that word is so very deliberate, like I said, I'm going to assume that God can bring reviving without these elements leading up to it. It's just simply an observation that historically speaking, I, I I can't find a single account where that has happened. And the reason I'm laying that out here this way is because you just got to think. If that's true, if God has always used these particular means to lead up to revival, if we really want revival, it'd be really smart if we did the things that seem to provoke revival or bring about revival. I think we can learn from the past. That means there's things we are to do and there's things we are to not do. And what I'm hoping and praying for from this little workshop is that Every one of you who's a pastor here will leave with a deep conviction that doing these things is right, and you'll persevere. Whether your church is four people or 4,000 people, I don't think it makes a bit of difference. I mean, if you preach different for four than you do for 4,000, then you need to check yourself. (laughs) I also want to just hope and pray that every church member here is going to leave with a deep conviction to be in a church where these things are practiced, And if those things are not practiced in your church, you're going to try and be a voice for them to be practiced. And I want to think that every one of us is going to do all we can to help promote these things wherever we see them. (laughs) You know, you find some other church in your city and they're preaching, praying, and cooperating. I just encourage it. We're not in competition, right? Okay, so here we go. The saints uniting together in earnest prayer. On the subject of means, something needs to be said more particularly on prayer. 
As with the truth that is preached, prayer has no inherent power in itself. We get this wrong sometimes. We think if we can get 35 people praying for our uh, sick relative, there's more likelihood God's going to hear. That's not true. <laughs> He'll hear just you. The, the power is not in the prayer. The power is in God. On the contrary, true power is bound up with a persuasion of our inability and our complete dependence on God. Prayer, considered as human activity, whether offered by few or many, can guarantee no results. But, listen, prayer that throws believers in heartfelt need on God with true concern for the salvation of sinners will not go unanswered. Prayer of this kind precedes blessing, not because of any necessary cause and effect, but because such prayer secures an acknowledgement of the true author of the blessing. Where such a spirit of prayer exists, it's a sign that God is already intervening to advance his cause. One thing that can be said with certainty about the 1790s, before any general indications of a new era were to be seen, is that there was a growing concern among Christians to pray. That's true. We don't have time to unpack it all, but there are all these little groups popping up, pastors connecting, just beginning to pray and to pray, oh, that God might work. A couple of illustrations. You might have heard of what's sometimes called the Third Great Awakening. Uh, Jeremiah Lanfear, who was a, a businessman, 49 years old. He was 49. I have it here somewhere. Anyway, uh, his church was in total decline in the inner city of New York. Uh, the world was caught up in itself. Uh, so his church hired him to try and revitalize the work. So he went around the neighborhood visiting church members. Nothing happened, nothing happened, nothing happened. Membership did not increase. Nobody was coming to church. So he put up some flyers around New York City. Come and pray on Wednesday for one hour. Come for five minutes, ten minutes, twenty minutes, whatever you can. That's all he did. And uh, the first day came, nobody came, nobody came. Half hour in, one man came. By the end of the meeting, there were six, and they agreed that they would meet again the following week. Now I have to read my notes. <laughs> Within six months, 10,000 businessmen... Out of a population, New York City at this time was a population of 800,000. If anybody's good at math, can you give me like a percentage, 10,000 of 800,000? Nobody's nodding like they can do math. I have no idea how to do math. A great percentage. Thank you, brother. I see you and I graduated with the same. Yes, yeah. Well, I, can't, I can't even remember. I'm not even going to try. But imagine that. You go, you go just a guy putting up flyers. you got 10,000, and that spread throughout the country. It came up into Hamilton, too. There's some interesting things that happened there. In 1858, there were at least 20 other prayer meetings going in the city of New York City. What happened because of that, right? Well, conversions began taking place in earnest. Churches were filling again. There were possibly, it, it's a little bit disputed, but we're gonna, the conservative estimate is that God saved about a million souls in a span of five to ten years. A million people. That's, that's huge when you know the overall population of that day. That's a huge working of God. And where did America go next? The Civil War. And how many of those men died? And many have wondered, was that God's just gracious kindness to bring into the kingdom all of these souls who would soon be with him forever. I think it was. Or think about Acts chapter 4. You remember that great prayer meeting uh, of the early church that was followed by what we might consider to be immediate revival when they had prayed, Acts 4.31. The place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. 
It's interesting to consider. Did they pray as a result of the fact that they were being revived, or did their prayers help usher in the reviving work of God? Like most revivals, it seems to be a both and. But we can talk about what Edward Griffin saw in Boston in the early 1800s. He said this, the means employed in these revivals have been but two, the clear presentation of divine truth and prayer. Let me just ask some questions. Does your church worship service include prayer? And, and by including prayer, I'm asking, um, well, let me, let me say it another way. Not just the mumblings of somebody who says, Lord, just bless us in, you know, whatever, in a five-second prayer. I mean, there's places for five-second prayers. I don't want to argue that. But does your public worship of God include serious prayer led by able prayers? I think it's a good question to ask. Does your church have other meetings to pray? I don't know how many churches I've been to that the first thing they dropped was the meeting to pray. Does the Bible say every church, every local church must have a prayer meeting? No, I don't think it does. I think it certainly intimates it. But it strikes me as a profound, profound depth of presumption on our parts if we're expecting God to revive us and we are not routinely begging him for his mercy. What kind of presumption is that? Pastor, brother, do you really pray? Oh, I hate asking this question because I'm, I'm looking here. <laughs> do we really seek God on behalf of our sheep or do we trust our programs or our associate pastors or our buildings or our structures? Where's your trust? If your trust is in the Lord, you're going to beg God for his mercy. You're going to look to God to do the work, right? So do we pray? And when it comes to revival, it's nice to have a conference on revival, but if we're thinking the conference is going to bring revival, no, no I'll just tell you, like, it's one of the first things we talked about as a council. We're not, we don't expect our conference to bring revival. That's not what brings revival. God brings revival. If this conference can do anything, maybe what it can do is get a whole bunch of people serious about God and refreshed in their desire to pursue him and eager to lean in in prayer and really seek God to do the work. And you can take comfort that God hears those prayers. I think you need to take honest stock of yourself. You get away at a conference like this, it's a great time just to ask yourself, am I praying as I should? And if your conclusion is, no, I am not praying as I should, then why not commit at this very moment to make alterations and have the kind of courage of a Jeremiah Lanfear who says, hey, you know what? My church hasn't had a prayer meeting in 25 years, but I'm going to start one. And if it's me for a little while, that's okay. I pastored a little church in the summer once in Grand Valley when I was a college student. And uh, I remember it was, it was a great test to me because uh, for the evening service, which was a prayer meeting and a little bit of teaching, um, one lady showed up and then another lady showed up. That made a total of three. And I didn't even quote the verse out of context where two or three are gathered. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, I just thought, well, these ladies are here and we're going to pray. And it was one of the sweetest meetings all summer long. Um, it could have been a train ride. I'm not saying that you do it for sweet meetings, right? But are you, are you going to be willing to just keep on, keep on, pastor, keep on? The Lord will do his work. You be faithful. You know, the Moravians prayed every hour of every day for over 100 years. <laughs> that just blows my brains. So... There was a Moravian somewhere in the world praying every hour 
of every day. And they were used of God to ignite the missionary movement that we have uh, come to know, really, that was all part of the Second Great Awakening. It was the Moravians leading the way. And so much of what happened may have been a result of their prayers. We've got to be praying. Okay, I'll try and prove the second point. Pulpits become even more word-centered. You will always find the men, that the men whom God has used signally, this is Lloyd-Jones, um, have been those who have studied most, known their scriptures best, and given time to preparation. Again, I'm convinced a pastor must nourish his mind. It cannot be too well stocked. And brother pastor, that begins in our just reading of the word of God. Lloyd-Jones, um, this is Ian Murray writing about Lloyd-Jones. Chief place went to reading the Bible itself and in the first instance for his own spiritual help, not to find texts, to find sermons. You read uh, Spurgeon and lectures to my students. Same thing. You've got to feed yourself on the word. You're not there just to get sermons. You're there to meet with God. He aimed to go through the scriptures every year omitting nothing. That should be the very minimum of the preacher's Bible reading. I heard that from Don Carson about 15 years ago. Changed my life. Just try to read through the Bible once a year. However you do it. Just, or, uh, there's all kinds of other ways. Talk to Julian. He's got all kinds. Of, raise your hand for a second. Julian will tell you great ways to read through. You don't want to raise your hand? Just raise your hand. Okay, he uses an app. There's apps. There's an app for that. How about Josiah? Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. He reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David, his father. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In the 18th year of his reign, so he's 26 years old, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, the secretary of the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money that's been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. This, my friends, is nothing other than a renovation project. But anybody here renovated at home? Oh, yeah. It never goes according to plan, right? <laughs> it never goes according to plan. And in this particular renovation project did not go according to plan. Hilkiah, the high priest, as they're cleaning out rooms, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. So nobody's reading their Bible now. Nobody's been reading the Bible for the better part of 75 years. Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan, the secretary, came to the king and reported to the king. Look at how he does this. Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. <laughs> That's all he says, right? Talk about noncommittal, neutral, like we don't know if this is good or bad. Because, you know, his father was killing everybody and, uh, that tried to follow Yahweh. So this is treacherous. Shaphan read it before the king. And when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And thus began the revival. <laughs> See, in Josiah's day, it's the rediscovery of God's word that leads to refreshing. And in Ontario, may I speak directly to us here in Ontario? Our pulpits have been plagued by liberalism on the one side and pragmatism on the other. And at the root of both of those, the root of both of them is a man-centeredness that in every way, in every way repels the presence of God. God opposes the proud. But I think there's fresh winds blowing. <laughs> there is this young crop of young preachers 
coming up who love the word of God. Their lives have been shaped by it. I'm seeing other men, older men, who, who are finding the word of God again, just like they found it in the temple, and it's, it's changing them. And so that's what has to happen. Pastors have to actually believe what it says. That's the answer to the liberals. And then pastors have to seek to order their lives by what it commands. That's the answer to the pragmatists. And so when pastors get the word of God in them and they're feeding themselves on that word and it's changing how they see the world and it's changing how they do ministry, whatever that's supposed to mean, that, that changes everything. And, and brothers are doing this by elevating the preaching ministry from trite stories and self-help talks to just good, robust exegesis of the whole counsel of God. That is a glorious and good work. I'm not talking about running commentaries on the text. I'm talking about preaching. <laughs> but it's preaching that is based on the word of God, and it's preaching that's not scared of the hard truths. Um, let me give you a couple of quotes here. I'm going to skip one, Chloe, the one that starts with, it makes no difference. It, it, this is uh, Lloyd-Jones again. It makes no difference. Who you are or what you are, it makes no difference how good you may appear to be or how much good work you may do. You may have been inside the church all your life and actively engaged in its work, but still I say, and I am merely repeating what is said repeatedly in the Bible, that unless you have at some time or other felt that your very nature itself is sinful, that you are, in the words of Paul, dead in sins, then you have never known Jesus Christ as a Savior, and if you do not know him as a Savior, you do not know him at all. They need... Um, they that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. Just one example of Lloyd-Jones preaching. In London, at the time of the Great War, and, and just confronting people who liked church but didn't love Christ with the true gospel. Remember, there's, there's no cause and effect promise here. In the case of the Second Great Awakening, nearly all the preachers prominent at the outset had already been laboring for many years. But it wasn't just, and it's not just preaching that is needed, but it's preaching and it's the preaching of Christ. I see a man cannot be a faithful minister, this is McShane again, until he preaches Christ for Christ's sake, until he gives up striving to attract people to himself and seeks only to attract them to Christ. And you've got to believe in the means. You've got to believe that God is able to do this. Such spiritual joy, this is talking about Whitfield, in part, uh, explains in part the extraordinary attraction which people found in his ministry. Other men may talk of the things of God, but in a way which made them appear little more than dry theories. Yet as Whitfield expressed them, they were full of life and meaning and power. No wonder neither church nor house would hold the throngs that came to hear. Why? Because they were life and power to him. Whitfield, for the better part of 40 years, started every morning, 4 a.m., opening the book and praying over every word he read. Brothers, we need to be men of the word. I want to leave time for discussion, so I'm going to try and go quicker. Quick, quickler? That's not a word. More fastly quickness. Uh, the churches of many denominations, the third thing I want to prove, churches of many denominations reaching outside of their tribe to know and work with those of like faith. As was seen in the time of Edwards, Whitfield, Davies, one mark of an outpouring of the Spirit of God is the presence of a stronger Catholicity. So Catholicity there does not mean Roman Catholic, just means uh, the, the Catholic Church, the Church Universal. That word uni universal would be another way to say it. Um, a Catholicity of Spirit among believers. Only when churches, please hear, only when churches put adherence 
to Christ first can the world begin to recognize the real identity of those who bear his name. Whitfield said, I have no party to be at the head of, and through God's grace I will have none. But as much as in me lies will strengthen the hands of all of every denomination that preach Jesus Christ in sincerity. Whitfield almost, well, not almost always, but often ended his letters, may the name of Whitfield perish, but may the name of my Lord be remembered. Speaking of Whitfield, he was a man of extraordinary Catholicity and liberality in his religion. He knew nothing of that narrow-minded policy which prompts a man to fancy that everything must be barren outside his own camp and that his party, his party, has got a monopoly of truth in heaven. He loved all who loved the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. He measured all by the measure which the angels of God used. Did they possess repentance toward God's faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ, holiness of conversation, the conversation there, the way they live. If they did, they were as his brethren. His soul was with such men by whatever name they were called. Minor differences were wood, hay, and stubble to him. The marks of the Lord Jesus were the only marks he cared for. Uh, we could say more there, but I'll, I'll move on. It may be, um, in my mind, that this Catholicity of spirit, this cooperative work, is one of the greatest indicators of the, at least the, the promptings, the winds of, of true revival. Are these things happening in Canada? Well, I, I'm starting to see things. Uh, here in Toronto is the Toronto Gospel Alliance. For the last 10 years, there are six of us that have met together. A, um, a reformed charismatic, a Feb church planter, a gospel-loving paedobaptist, an evangelistic neo-theonomist uh, and a young church planner and me um, who determined about 10 years ago that we were going to be friends because of Christ. Spent the first four years of our friendship meeting together trying to build trust. So talk to me about this theonomy thing. <laughs> Are you really a Christian? Talk to me about this charismatic thing. Talk to me about this thing. And just hashing out Theology, like pastors love to do, hashing out what it means to really follow the Lord. And at the, the end of the day, what do we do? We gather our churches once a year on Good Friday. We, we have a service. We rotate around. One of us preaches. One of the other churches leads the singing. So it's always different every year. It's about as um, plain Jane as you could possibly be. But it's the church of Jesus Christ, at least in microcosm, standing up in the middle of downtown Toronto and saying, we're here. And we're together, and we're here for Christ. TGC Atlantic, you're going to hear from Steve Bray at the conference. Uh, the last four or five years, they've put together, I think, three conferences now, four. Uh, and remarkable things. I was out there preaching a couple of years ago. I mean, these are some brothers that are pastoring a little church in a, in a, in a town in Labrador, on the coast of Labrador, with maybe 80 people in it. And you're the pastor of the community. There's nobody else there. Faithful brothers that, are, that love the word of God, that love the gospel you love, who are just delivering it week by week faithfully. Steve's bringing those guys together. They're meeting one another, getting to know each other. They're encouraging each other. You're going to hear from Yannick about Sola, which is really the TGC Quebec. It eventually probably will be. Um, Refocus Canada that Rob talked about today that Willington Church did. This conference, these are, these are sweet things. Not all of these things have been happening here in our country. So I say, yes, I think good things are happening. But what must we do? 
I got six things, and I'll be quick. One, be holy. I, by the way, I'm just gonna I'm gonna aim. I don't I don't want to know if you're a pastor. <laughs> I'm just, going to, I'm just going to aim all my application at pastors and assume that there'll be fallout application to you if you're not a pastor. But I'm, I'm going for the pastors here. You're in my room. I got you. <laughs> Number one, be holy. Listen to McShane again. You know not when your last Sabbath with your people may come. Speak for eternity. Above all things, cultivate your own spirit. A word spoken by you when your conscience is clear and your heart full of God's spirit is worth 10,000 words spoken in unbelief and sin. This was my great fault in the ministry. Remember, it is God and not man that must have the glory. It is not much speaking, but much faith that is needed. I see a man cannot be a faithful minister until he preaches Christ for Christ's sake, until he gives up striving to attract people to himself and seeks only to attract them to Christ. Three questions. One is this. Is God holding back revival because of our passion for vain recognition and personal fame? Two. Is part of the cause of our spiritual backsliding as a nation the professionalization of the clergy class into some false fame? Three, maybe God is refusing to bless our churches because we preachers would be far too quick to take the credit. To me, those are heart questions for every preacher. Am I willing for God to bless and receive, authentically receive none of the credit? McShane says, live near to God and all things will appear little to you in comparison with eternal realities. Again, McShane, the greatest need of my people is my personal holiness. Secondly, brothers, preach Jesus. J.C. Ryle, when writing about uh, Rowland, said, first thing I noticed in his remains and his written works is the constant presence of Christ in all his addresses. Didn't matter what he was preaching on, he got to Jesus. Brothers, we need to believe that God is going to use the ordained means of preaching Jesus. A little footnote in volume two of, uh, volume one, I think, of uh, Dalimore's Whitfield. Uh, during this trip, Whitfield preached at Shakily Common. Like, what's more British than a place called Shakily? Uh, Maybe it's Shackley. I don't know. It looks like Shakley. I'm going to say Shakley. During this trip, Whitfield preached at Shakley Common, and a man leaning on a gate a mile away distinctly heard many of his sentences, was convinced of sin, and soon converted. Whitfield found out because when he made another trip through the area, that man came and told him. It was years later. You won't believe the story. He was leaning on a fence post, and I heard a voice over the hills. Brother, do you have that kind of faith in the preaching of God's word? That God is going to do his work when he wills. I include that story because sometimes we wonder, how will God save anyone if he doesn't save the ones right in front of me? (laughs) Well, he can save as he pleases. Do you believe it? 
Do you believe in the means that he has ordained? He saved you. So Paul writes to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of the of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. The word. The word. Be ready, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. McShane again. Get your texts from God, your thoughts, your words from God. In great measure, according to the purity and perfections of the instrument, will be success. It is not great talents that God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. A word spoken by you when your conscience is clear, your heart full of God's spirit is worth 10,000 words spoken in unbelief and sin. God is able to do his work. We got to pray. We got to preach. I got to go faster. Have courage. Number three. If you read, there's a great book by Ian Murray called uh, Wesley and the Men Who Followed Him. Gideon Usley was uh, just, this dude is a rock star in my world. Um, he was 36. The guy he was with was 49. They were, their years in Ireland coincided with the revival in Ireland. They were great. There were many men used there, but these two guys in particular, and they were always getting persecuted by the Catholics in Ireland for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they had courage. They just kept on preaching, and they were ingenious. So they found that uh, rather than get attacked by a mob and beat up, if you preached from horseback... You didn't get beat up as quickly, so they would preach from horseback. Then the, the people realized, well, if you want to stop them from preaching, throw rocks at them. So they throw rocks at them. And then they thought, well, if you back your horse up in front of the Catholic shop owner's window, nobody throws rocks at you. I mean, it just goes on and on with these guys. That's courage. We've got to get the gospel out. So we'll go to the funeral, and we'll preach at the funeral. We'll go to the wedding. We'll preach at the wedding. We'll stand outside mass until everybody comes out, and we'll stand on a gravestone and preach the true gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what they did. Oh, this is Canada. Yeah, it is Canada. But maybe we need some courage. Fourthly, do real evangelism. Um. I'll just take that first quote, Chloe, from McShane there. Observe how often Jesus went a long way for one soul, as, for example, the maniac and the woman of Canaan. McShane was just speaking about, if we're, if we're, significant about, if we're serious about evangelism, there's got to be a willingness to, to go for the one, to, to suffer in order to bring about an opportunity to get the gospel to the one. And you know that the salvation of the lost does not happen apart from the preaching of the gospel. People don't get saved by any other means. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth he confesses and is saved. The scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then, think about this, how then... Will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Let's be clear what the text does not say. It does not say, how then will they get their lives together if they've not been pre-evangelized? How are they to be pre-evangelized when they've never, been, never even visited a church? How are they going to visit a church without someone helping them to feel at ease in a church building with nice parking and comfortable seats? It's <laughs> not what it says. I'm all for comfortable seats and nice parking. 
The comfortable seats and a nice auditorium with an espresso bar in the lobby can lead to hell as well as it could lead to the gospel. Where are you putting your trust? At some point, we have to tell people from our pulpits and in our conversations they need to repent and they need to believe on Jesus. We can explain those terms. We can make those terms culturally relevant. I'm all for it. But we can't shirk on the gospel. Number five, forge friendships outside your denomination. You simply have to read about Whitfield if that's a new thought to you. Read about, in volume two of Whitfield's Life by Dal Moore, read about the constant attacks and underminings and disparaging articles written and published. And thank the Lord the blog wasn't, blogs weren't around when John Wesley was alive. Um, but all that John Wesley did against George Whitfield, and George Whitfield, to make a point, insisted that John Wesley preach his funeral. And he would write his brother, I will not be divided from you. I will not be divided from you. Brothers, uh, true unity takes work. There's just no way around it. It takes work. Finally, you got to pray. You just have to pray. Whitfield, like Wesley and others, made it his regular habit to get up early in the morning, pray over the word of God, most often on his knees, McShane said this, a man is what he is on his knees before God and nothing more. So when you are finished praying, pray some more. Why don't I do that now? Father, use the, dead, the voices of the dead here to speak to us, to challenge us, to correct us, to change us for your glory. Amen. I'm sorry I didn't go faster. I think we have five minutes left, yes? Or do we have something starting in five minutes? I have no idea. Pardon me? Great. So if you want to do some, you want to, you want to rebuke me, you want to correct me, I'd be very happy to hear it. If you want to add something, if you want to ask a clarifying question, anything at all, if you want to leave, that's fine too. Yeah, I'm not sure I totally agree. I know the quote, you know, that the seed of the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. I think that is true sometimes, but there's also historically, uh, even in Iran right now, um, that Christianity may be wiped out entirely. Uh, there's been possibly, you know, certainly thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of our Christian brothers in Iran put to death. Um, and so I'm, I, I know the sentiment of the statement. I'm just not sure that it's always true. But yeah, definitely God has used that. Great. Anybody else? Any modern revivals that you know in North America? Yeah, I think all the revivals that have happened recently have been what we would call localized. Um, there's been some on certain university campuses. Uh, I think I might have lived through one in California, very small, very localized, but very unique. Um, I think... There have been others in different parts of the land, but nothing of the sweeping awakenings, as we would call them, the first, second great awakenings, where what was so marked about it is God was doing this work, you know, in North America and Europe 
and Africa all at the same time, and people didn't have the internet to know that. They just kind of compared notes later to say, wow, the Lord was just working on the globe. And so that's what we would count as more of a, of a true revival. Yeah. Yeah, it was definitely a very cool thing when the Lord just did a remarkable work there. Great. Uh, are you putting an email up there or something? So if you don't want these, that's fine. But if you would like copies of any of the things I quoted today, and there's some other ones in there I didn't get to, uh, just send an email to Chloe there at that address, and she would be glad to forward you that at some point in the near future, but not today. <laughs> Thanks.